I'm Peter Marks, theater critic of The Washington Post. I'm Terry Ticha, drama critic of The Wall Street Journal. And I'm Elizabeth Finchantilli. I write for The New York Times and The New Yorker. Welcome to another episode of Three on the Isle. A monthly, although what what is a month? How many weeks in a month? I do not know. It's... It's like one of those things. It's fallen by the wayside, the calendar. Uh, It's a monthly podcast from New York about theater in America. And we are hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. Well, I am going to skip all the chat because we have two great guests today. uh, And we need to really save as much time as possible for them. Uh, Samira Wiley and Kate Hamill. Uh, two actors, two wonderful actors, uh, were also very involved in behind-the-scene um, action. Most of our listeners know Samira Wiley from her stints as Pussy on Orange is the New Black and Moira on The Handmaid's Tale. But Samira has a long association with the stage. Um, she studied drama at Juilliard. Uh, and she appeared, for instance, I mean, I remember seeing her in uh, Chiara Allegria Hudes' uh, Daphne's Dive, a signature in 2016. So she's always been very involved uh, in stage work, and she has also participated in various projects uh, with the New York company, A Theatre of War. Yeah, and, you know, she's she is multifaceted uh, and, and really making her presence uh, felt in many on many platforms. She did this summer... Or over the over the the pandemic period, anyway, she played Orgon, the husband of the woman that whom uh, Tartuffe covets, in an online version of Tartuffe, 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 with uh, Raúl Esparza, and she was also Sonia in another online uh, production, uh, one of Uncle Vanya, alongside Alan Cumming, Constance Wu, and Ellen Burstyn. The other thing we should also uh, note is that she is now also a Broadway producer. In the next uh, uh, incarnation of Broadway, she is, along with Cheryl Lee Ralph and a host of other producers, uh, on the, uh, above the, the title in um, a production called uh, Thoughts of a Colored Man, the, day, the Broadway debut of, a play, of the playwright Kenan Scott III. Uh, so... Uh, welcome, Samira, uh, and w- and we welcome you uh, in all of your many hats. She's in Toronto shooting another season of The Handmaid's Tale. So, Yay! spoiler alert: characters <laughs> still alive Thank for you. now. Yes, for now. Um, Don't, you can't give these things away. Although we do know, then obviously, if you're if you're filming. <laughs> we, they, could we have that. they could be flashbacks. Oh they could my be God. flashbacks. Oh, you're no. right. So there's no, no spoiler. Don't put that. <laughs> okay, so. Um, you started, I read somewhere that you started doing like musical theater camps when you were really young. Yes. Like, can you tell us a little bit about that? So you have a long history because I would say a lot of people know you from your TV and your screen work. Yes. But you have a long, your history with the stage goes way back. Yeah, honestly, I th- you know, my first love is theater. And I always think of that, you know, as my, my entry point into um, this industry. Uh, when I was around 10 years old, there was this uh, theater arts program. But no, musical theater, was, it was dancing, there was singing, acting um, at Howard University. Uh, I grew up in D.C. It was like a children's program. And I did that like, at, like eight weeks and every single day you're there for like hours, but I loved it. And that's where I really fell in love uh, with theater. Ended up going to like a um, performing arts high school in DC. And Did you go uh, to Duke Ellington? And, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great school. 
It's, oh my I, God, Samir! I now I think I'm now remembering that you went to to Duke Ellington. Really, yeah, it's it's great. So many amazing people have gone there. Obviously, Dave Chappelle went there. Um, it's yeah, it, it it really shaped me. It, it like I had never gone to a school where it was so in, in, intense. Like so many people knew what they wanted to do, or at least thought mm. they knew what they wanted to do. Um, so we were able to really focus our energy on that. I didn't really want to do the other classes that were like math and, but apparently you got to do that to get to high school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got to read and write too. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You gotta Sad news. <laughs> um, so, were, were were you attracted to some like particular? material already like what 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 drew you to to that really yeah i you know even before going to that camp every summer i went in elementary school i remember this so vividly there was this thing called an oratorical contest that they had at my elementary school where like kids would just come up and they would learn a poem and then they would just like say it And it was so dry and like so boring. <laughs> and I, I remember being in a grade where like I wasn't old enough to do it yet. So I was just like sitting there twiddling my thumbs. And there was this girl who got up and she um, did Nikki Giovanni's ego tripping poem. Oh my God. And it was like, first of all, she's like in the sixth grade. So like, I don't think she understood all of it, but, um, but it was, it had like, energy to it it was she was telling a story like it made me lean in lean forward in my seat like it made me feel like I want to do that and like I feel like I can do that have a conversation mm -hmm. with like an audience it just seemed so magical to me how she mm -hmm. immediately like wrapped all of our attention mm -hmm. so yeah that was really the spark so 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 then okay so you you go to Juilliard right mm -hmm. what, what was your experience there like what was it like what kind of stuff were you doing there Yeah, I mean, you know, um, in essence, Juilliard is a, a, a classical theater training program. So we did a lot of, um, we worked a lot on the classics. We worked a lot on Shakespeare, of course. But then also, um, I learned a lot about Moliere. I learned a lot hmm. about Chekhov. Um, and I really got exposed to so many different things. I really felt like it was well-rounded in terms of the playwrights that we were introduced to, mm -hmm. in terms of the different methods of acting we were introduced to. I felt like I was kind of just given a lot of information and I was able to, and allowed to take the things that worked for me um, and kind of like put them in a toolbox, you know? Mm -hmm. And like the things that didn't really work for me, I was able to really kind of craft what acting would be just for Samira. I, learned, I know a lot of schools really work on like Meisner technique and that's it, you know? Um, so I, I just feel like I got a lot of stuff, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I was able to um, take certain things with me that really um, I, I come back to all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, I just saw you this uh, this past year, do Moliere online. So oh, I yeah. know, you know, and I saw. Off. And Chekhov. And online too, yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, I think that it's a wonderful thing to be able to leap from, you know, Orange is the New Black and, uh, and The Handmaid's Tale to this, to reach into this other resource you have. And also, you know, I think that, you know, for, and clearly Samira, you have, you've touched a nerve. I do think you've become kind of one of those touchstone actors. Um, uh, you're very, there's something very emotionally accessible about your work uh, always. And if you can bring along that, Uh, that energy back to the classics that you love from having the, uh, the, the, the larger um, uh, renown that you get from these shows. That's a great um, for the next generation. That's a wonderful uh, gift to be able to bestow. 
absolutely. I'm so happy that you said that. I feel that I honestly do think back to what I was so passionate about and things that, you know, I, I, I love language and there's this myth, I think that the classics are so far removed from who we are now mm-hmm. and we don't have anything to learn from it. And not only do we have th- things, do we, do we have things to learn from it, but like, it's just so similar to life right now. Like, mm-hmm. the, like the same things that they were going through. Like we did, we, we did Tartuffe and like this guy who's just like proselytizing and living life as a hypocrite, you know, like we, I don't need to paint the parallels to life right, right now. Right. Right. Um, and being able to, especially living in New York city for as long as I did and understanding, um, how, theater has become really unaccessible to a lot of young people, a lot of people who live their entire lives in New York city and have never been able to see a play. And for a person that has understood how, how much it has changed my life. I, I think it is essential to try and make that accessible to other people. Mm-hmm. Why doing, um, you know, the, the pandemic has caused so many problems, obviously, you know, Broadway is dark and especially losing live theater. It's, you know, it's what we all do. It's what makes us, you know, wake up and breathe in the morning. So dealing on one hand with the loss of that, mm. but through that also figuring out this new medium, um, has, which has, you know, been a rocky road. Um, but I know that it has given some people access to this material that would not have had it otherwise. And I know that they've been very appreciative for it, which is in turn made me, um, feel really fulfilled. But, but you've also taken that like a step further because for instance, you've become with Moliere in the park, which for, for listeners is a fairly new ish initiative in Brooklyn, which is kind of a Brooklyn answer to Shakespeare in the park, except it's yeah. in Prospect Park, Brooklyn, which I love because I can walk to it personally. So that's great. Um, but um, but you got a bit more involved than just acting in the shows. You, you're on the board. Um, I think you you're I think it's part of your steps to become a bit more active because there's a you, you can be a, a great actor, but there's something about helping to st- steer the ship. That seems to be important to you. It is important to me. Um, The artistic director um, and founder of Moliere in the Park is a wonderful director by the name of Lucy Tuberg, and I worked with her for her time um, at Juilliard and um, as, you know, just an actor in one of her plays. And, you know, we we found a kindred spirit, and I think we're both very passionate about making theater accessible. Um, you know, that's, that's what it was. People just, people just came to, you know, regular folk just came to the theater. People shouted at the stage. It was a party, you know, back in, uh, you know, in Greece and that like that energy, I feel like is the heart of what theater really is and being able to bring people into the fold who have never sat at a play before and sometimes don't know whatever we have established as like the proper etiquette or whatever, but like, that's what makes it exciting because that's what makes people engage, you know, when they feel like they don't have to sit back and those moments when like kids stumble into the park and don't know what's going on, but like, they don't need a, a t- you know, they are just on the sidelines being able to watch it. Like that is what I'm really, really interested in. And kids being, whenever a kid says something like, I didn't know that like, I didn't know that Moliere like had a part in it that was funny that could speak to me that reminded me of this person like that is so awesome to me. Um, 
Uh, Samira, I'm just curious, can you tell us a little bit about your pandemic life as, a, <laughs> as an actor? Uh, I, I do think that um, we, we <laughs> tend to think, many people think that things have stopped uh, entirely yep. for people in, uh, in uh, the creative economy. And um, that is not the case for you. How has this evolved for you over the, since um, March when things started shutting down uh, in live performance? Yeah, it's been, it's been a while. It's been a real journey. In the very beginning, uh, we'd actually already come back to shoot season four of The Handmaid's Tale. We came back in um, early March. So I had already filmed part of the show when COVID hmm. um I um, have, you know, I live elsewhere, so I usually travel back and forth. And I happen to j just traveled home um, right when they shut everything down. I know a lot of my castmates were still in Canada. Um, so, you know, it was kind of like, a, what's this going to be? A two-week thing, you know? <laughs> when are we going to get the call? Uh, and then as everyone found out eventually, this thing wasn't going away. Um, so in the beginning, work looked a lot like, um, putting like blankets and stuff in my closet <laughs> and like getting like one of those, you know, mics that like I could do voiceover work from. Right. I did like the entire, um, um, I was the voice of the Walgreens flu campaign this year in my shoe closet. Just, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's been fun. I did a couple narrative podcasts that way. Um, mm. and um, just as you've mentioned before, you know, I did Moliere in the Park did a few productions during COVID and mm -hmm. they've been really doing this amazing thing with technology and how they incorporate sets and make people feel like they're in the same room, even though one play, a guy was in Italy that was in the same room with me, you know? Um, so there was that. I also did something with um, um, Broadway, uh, the Actors Fund um, and Neil LeBute's new translation of Uncle Vanya. So there are a lot of things that, in the beginning it was voiceover. Then it kind of turned into, I feel like actors really needing more. There was something for a while I can call play per view that a lot of actors mm -hmm. were doing. Oh yeah, um, sure. And it was, you know, it was really, it, it's it's adapting because it's like not anything that we're used to and it's this kind of hybrid medium of like film and television and theater and i know a lot of frustration on my and some of my uh, um colleagues part of feeling like what is this you know this is not what mm -hmm. what um theater is supposed to be feeling frustrated you know i know writers a lot of times feeling frustrated in the creation in the creative process so that was, that's been a journey and I know it still is a journey because theaters are still closed. Um, and I'm just, you know, praying that that still works out well. And now in my journey, I'm in back in Canada, full circle, filming The Handmaid's Tale again, new protocols on set. Um, it definitely feels like people are taking this seriously in the, in, in, at least on my project. Um, that feels really good mm -hmm. to me. Um, I'm diabetic. Um, and I, you know, I'm in that population that mm -hmm. has pre-existing conditions. So I do feel safe. Um, I wondered, was it going to get in the way of acting? You know, mm -hmm. there were a lot of conversations beforehand. We had like a cast zoom and one of my castmates was worried about, you know, you have those private moments with directors 
before a scene. You know, sometimes there are things that you just you don't want any other actor to know, right. or something just between two actors and a director. And how can you have those private moments? How can you create those things? Um, so we, you know, tried to have conversations about rehearsing uh, outside of set. Um, but it's you know, it's all about finding this this hybrid way of doing something. But I think that that's what we as artists are really good at. Mm. A lot of times we're um, presented with obstacles that like we're creating this whole thing. All of a sudden you can't have that entire location. And mm. like, my wife is a writer. She just like rewrites something, you know, and that's been really interesting. Mm. I feel like it's been more of a collaborative process mm. as a result of it. That's one thing I always miss being away mm. from theater is the, the the feeling of collaboration. There's just like a spirit there of collaboration when you're in the theater. Um, and that's that I have found sometimes missing in film and TV. Hmm. Um, you've talked, yeah, you've talked about hybridization, which is a really interesting word to use in this context. What kinds of forms do you think might survive the pandemic? How do you think all of this is going to affect the, the ecology of theater once herd immunity exists and it's possible to have live performance again? Yeah, I, that's a really great question. I do think that it is going to have to still take a lot of, of, of thought and innovation at this, at this point. I don't think that I have seen um, something that is like, aha, they got it. You know what I mean? Like, and I don't even know if necessarily that is always the goal because we never get to the point in, you know, creating something where we feel like, and there's nothing more to be done. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to see just even watching different people, different, you know, theater companies, um, pieces progress over the time of the, of the, the pandemic and seeing the things that they were able to do in the beginning than the things that they can do now. It's, you can tell that people are really, really kind of in a space where they are forced to be able to figure this out. And there's, there's something exciting about that. Like this ball rolling that people are, they know that people are listening and with each step, more people are listening and the word of mouth is getting out. So I'm not sure if this is, I don't think that, um, people like sitting in front of the screen, reading a script um, from person to person that that's going to last. Um, I think that um, that's one of the things that we have found out we need a little bit more, you know what I mean? To engage people um, rather than just, you know, doing a play reading. Um, and, 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 and I think that if people are really passionate about that, you know, there are some people who I've, come into contact with who are just passionate about that one thing you know there's a guy who's a technician who's created a lot of software specifically for that medium so i think maybe that could last um but for me i mean maybe i'm a purist but i i'm i'm looking forward to being in a theater i'm looking forward to like sitting next to someone and being able to have their laughter um affect my laughter um that's i i just miss that so 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 much it's laughter i miss most of all yeah and i and i find you, you, i i don't know if you know this but i cover theatrical webcasts every week in the wall street journal and so i'm, I'm seeing a lot of stuff and yeah. one thing i have found is that comedy i mean, I mean comedy where people really laugh when there are punchlines 
does not work well when it's taped in an empty theater. And um, I'm wondering, uh, I don't think there's anything to be done about that. Whereas I think that, that organic forms that emerge out of the nature of the technology could end up being quite exciting because every artistic director I know says that they intend to continue webcasting after the pandemic is over. And I'm very curious to see what they do if they're just going to be trying to to reproduce the stage experience as closely as possible, or whether they're going to try to come up with something that emerges organically from the, the technology itself. Yeah, I, I mean, like, I, I don't see, I, I agree with you that if something that comes organically through this, I can see that continuing forward. But I was watching something recently and it was like a taped version of a play. And there's something so specific, I feel like, about the direction that goes into a play. You know, like, I mean, you have a director for a reason. And when you try to put that on a frame like this, it's just, there's so much that is lost. And I found myself actually being a little sad watching it um, because I remembered what the feeling was watching it in the theater. And I feel like it really has to be its own thing for in order for these theater companies to continue with that webcast because you can't recreate that. And I think maybe trying to recreate it is where sometimes we run into problems. Samira, I have a question um, about along these lines. you know, I find that even on the streets, I avoid people. I, I, I'm used now, I'm, I'm accustomed now to not having contact with other human beings. It's, it's, I'm, I'm metabolizing that month by month ever more. And I wonder about, you know, the idea, you know, we as critics always are uh, commending actors for, uh, for, for the vulnerability that they uh, can convey on a stage or that they bring to their, their performances, does that, is there some damage being done long-term to the ability of actors to be that open to each other on a stage? I don't know that, um, if that ha- if, is that revealed to you on a set in a different way, a movie set, um, but is there a, a fear that, that inevitably creeps in when you're trying to relate to other actors in the way that you're accustomed to. And there's that momentary stall of, uh, wait, uh, am I, you know, am I in trouble here? You know, does that intrude in some way, or can you just let go of all that and to hell with it? And I'm going full blast, you know, you know, I'm just trusting the situation, you know, how much of that is changing for you? Wow, that really just blew my mind, that whole question. <laughs> I'm like, I don't think I was this scared, but now I am. Great. Thank you, Peter. That was going there. I, Sorry, Samira. Sorry. Uh, you know. But, but the reason is there's just so much truth in what you're saying, right? Like, I, I, I find myself now watching, because especially over the holidays, watching a lot of old movies, and... It's, I mean, like, I am, like, I know this movie was years ago, but when people got close to each other and were touching each other for no real reason, just because it was a part of their, their, you know, the way they, they their mannerism or whatever, it freaked me out. And yeah. Um, yeah. I had to remind myself that, like, no, this is from a different time. This is okay. Um, but I think inevitably we can't deny that that, this is changing us mm. as people. 
Um, I, you know, I joked with someone recently about like, you know, my grandkids being like, why does grandma wash her hands like that? <laughs> um, <you know? laughs> um, so, but I think that with changing times, the material is always changing, right? Mm. Because I think mm. it's our responsibility as artists to reflect the time that we're living in. Mm. Um, I think that there are always going to be challenges in terms of, because within this, we're still having moments of vulnerability, even if it's just with ourselves mm. and, um, or if it's with a person through a screen and mm. like, how do we tell those stories and how do we make sure that they still hit us here mm -hmm. um, is, is the real question but i i mean i hadn't thought of that as as thoroughly as you <laughs> as you laid it out peter but i think that's really true i think it's kind of scary to look at because any change is scary um the unknown is 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 um a little sometimes difficult to to deal with um but i think basically like it, it, not even just going to the specifics of everything we're dealing with with this time but everything that we go through has to be incorporated into our work some way or the other whether it's intentional or not um so i think that there will be probably something to work through and mm. and while we're working through it being able to use it even to our advantage mm. really interesting we're living in a world where we can't see people hold each other on the screen right it's crazy it's i mean that's one thing that i do um one thing that, you know, Elizabeth Moss, when she was talking to us about coming back and she was talking about, um, and the producers were just wanting the show to still feel like the show, you know? And so in order to do that, there's a level that trust that has to come in. You can do all that you can in terms of protocols, in terms of getting your people tested. But if I can't say to my castmate, hey, we're doing this scene this week, it, mm -hmm. it tells, we have to do all these things. Can you please not go out to dinner for a week? You know, things right. like that. Like, because right. I am still doing scenes where I'm like close to people, but it it is in a way where I have to be like, hey man, like I've been acting with you for four years. I know you love me. Don't do this this weekend, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, that's... Um, Samira, I'm curious also about, you're, you're taking on, your, your roles are expanding actually uh, during a pandemic in the sense that it was announced recently that you and Cheryl Lee Ralph are among the producers uh, when we come back of a broad, of a, of a live stage production, uh, 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 Thoughts of a Colored Man by Keenan Scott, I believe. Yes, but, yes. Um, and I saw that you took on the, you've taken on this other uh, 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 role can you just uh, tell us a little bit of how you came to be a producer on this show and what you see going forward as an actor also uh, involved in the business side of, uh, of Broadway? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, for, for just me having a career, looking for roles, looking for meaty roles, roles that are not um, the same over and over again, you just, you obviously fall into the place of like, looking for authors. And I, this play was brought to me. Um, and I think it's a beautiful play. It's a play um, with seven black men. Um, mm. And that's it. And I had a real question in the beginning, actually, of like, okay, how do I, 
who am I? I'm, I really actually pride myself on being a lot of minorities. You know, I'm a black gay woman. It's not much more you can get. (laughs) Um, And wanting to tell queer people's stories, wanting to tell um, people of color stories um, and specifically tell them um, with those people actually telling their own stories. So I had a question of like, well, I'm not a black man. You know, is this actually the thing that, um, you know, I 100% support this, but like, is this something that I should be putting my name on? You know, should we be? And I had a lot of conversation with myself about that. And I went back to the first thing I said, which is that, yes, I fully support this. So that's really all I need, right? Mm -hmm. If I fully support this, then me fully supporting is putting my name behind it and saying, I believe in this this, uh, brother, this playwright, Keenan. I believe in this play. I believe in having representation on the biggest stage in America. So when I thought of all of those things and stopped trying to get like figure out a reason for me not to do it, I realized that actually it's something that I really do want to do. And not only that, I think that is the the the, the catalyst for my mind being opened up um, into trying to ask myself questions of what else do I care about uh, in the world of in the world of theater, um, in the world of lots of things, but right now in theater, what do I care about and what do I want to put my name behind and what do I want to champion? And that's so far, that is Moliere in the Park. That's going to be producing this Broadway play with so many of, of my, you know, people of color that look just like me and being able to have little people who want to be actors see themselves on that stage. And number three for me, Right now, I'm, I've always, always, always wanted to be on a stage in London and, and on Broadway. But right now, I've been just, uh, we've been talking to some theaters in London and um, trying to get me on stage there. And we have some really exciting things that could happen in um, possibly 2022. Um, and I'm wow. just really trying to immerse myself back home. Um, TV has been what people know me for. Um, it's been, it's really allowed me to have the life that I have, but my goal has always been to be able to figure out how to make money. So like, I can go do all the things I really want to do. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I'm really curious. Uh, I was looking at your IMDb page and I spotted that you have a, a project with Lila Neugebauer in there and Lila was our very first guest on this she podcast. Was? Yes, she was. She was our very first guest. Um, yes. And then we realized, what have we done? Because this is a really tough act to follow. We'll <laughs> never get someone as articulate. Totally. And like, <laughs> she speaks in complete paragraphs. And we were like, oh, totally. my God. Totally. It's insane. <laughs> but anyway, so can you tell us a bit about that? Or is that like super secret? Or what, no, what's I that mean, about? Like, I, it, I mean, I think it has our faces on IMDb, so I'm just going to say it. Um, it's, the, it's her first movie, um, Isla's first feature film, um, and it's produced by Scott Rudin. Um, right now, I think the people that are, the main people in the, in the movie right now are me, Jennifer Lawrence, and Brian Tyree Henry, another um, Broadway oh. grad. Wow. Um, and I think that... Bobby Hero. I mean, having having Lila, you know, Brian, people who come from theater, and then also Jennifer Lawrence. I'm a big fan of hers. Obviously, she's a talent at, like, she came out at, like, 16 and was like, I'm an Oscar winner. <laughs> um, so, 
so I'm excited about this project. I don't know exactly when it's going to come out. We know Scott Rudin is a machine, so I'm having no problem <laughs> um, worrying that that's not going to, you know, come out or, 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 or be um, a great, you know, once people are really able to see what Lila did. But, 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 but I mean, have you, is, is that shot? Like, oh, what it's stage over. Is... Sorry. Yes. Yes. Oh, it's over. But... We shot it. We so, shot oh, it. So it's, it's finished. Time. Okay. Oh, we wow. shot it. Be, we finished before the pandemic. Okay. Yes. All right. Oh, okay. So you're involved with fellow Broadway producer Scott Rudin. Yes. Well, I, <laughs> it wasn't then. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, honestly, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> you should. I know. I, 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 I know. Go in. <laughs> so how much longer are you going to be? So how much more shooting you have? And do you, and are, do you know what you're doing? Like you know, is how do you plan now for a future oh, yeah. uh, in, in in as an actor? Um. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things right now that um, are working with tentative dates, you mm -hmm. know? Um, I hear about projects that's, that all have tentative date of this, tentative date of that. Um, I know I just got an email from SAG that said that um, production in Southern California has been halted. Um, and, you know, you just never know what's going to happen from day to day. Right. Um, it's honestly not that different from an actor's life in general, because like projects are always like in flux and like mm -hmm. this one's got a new director and like that one lost funding. So I always say like being an actor is kind of like, um, especially in the beginning, it's a job in learning how to be professionally rejected. <laughs> um, and it's also um, a game of hurry up and wait always. Mm -hmm. You're just waiting, 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 waiting. And then all of a sudden you got to go now, you know, and you got it and you have to be on. So it's not a life for everyone, but um, I like it. Well, <laughs> it works for you and it works for us, Samira, really. Yes. It really does. It's great to see your, uh, to see the, the arc yes. of your career uh, and the blossoming. It's really, really exciting. And, and um, we appreciate you taking a little bit of time with us today. Absolutely. Well, thank fun, you guys. so much. Our next guest is a double threat, the wonderful playwright and actor, Kate Hamill. As a writer, Kate is best known for her stage adaptations of classic texts like Sense and Sensibility, Vanity Fair, Pride and Prejudice, Little Women, and Dracula, which have helped to make her one of America's most produced playwrights for the past three years. Kate often appears in these plays as well, but we're especially curious to know about her most recent project, or at least the one we know about, a socially distanced production of Lanford Wilson's Tally's Folly for Syracuse Stage, in which she appeared with her husband, Jason O'Connell. Without further ado, let us welcome Kate Hamill to the podcast. Hi, it's so nice to virtually see you. This has been <laughs> one of the most technically fought preludes we've ever had on the show but we're forging on which is the pleasures which i think is uh they don't want to know orders. nobody wants but to know nobody's actually connects to the stuff we're going to talk about since you know we're now all in this wonderful world of zoom theater uh and it feels pretty kind of on the nose almost <laughs> Yeah. I'm sure you've had your share yeah. of mishaps and 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 uh, and stories and issues with the the things that we've all been living with for the past 10, 11 months now. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what you've been up to this year? Like, wh where were you in, in, in February, March? What were you doing? 
Um, well, funnily enough, uh, my production of Dracula for Classic Stage closed March 8th in New York. And um, the, the last... One of the last shows I reviewed. I reviewed. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the last... Um, it was funny because for the last, I think the last three weeks um, were totally sold out online, but we noticed even though all the tickets were sold online, the houses started shrinking because people were starting to get more and more scared. And in fact, one of the um, last shows we had, a woman was sitting there wearing an, a whole gas mask. And at the time, it just felt s slightly dystopian and absurd. <laughs> But we realized, oh, you know, th th we could kind of feel it coming down the pet uh, pike. But that night, I very stupidly, in retrospect, got on a red eye um, to go to uh, South Coast Rep, where I was supposed to have um, a world premiere of Scarlet Letter. So I was there for a couple of days. And then I went, I also was supposed to have the world premiere of Emma at the Guthrie. So I got on another flight. March 10, March 8th and March 11th. I got on two flights and I had been scheduled to do about eight trips back and forth because those shows were supposed to pre premiere within a week of each other. And being on those flights, I just thought this is an incredibly bad idea. Um, I am putting myself in danger. I'm putting other people in danger. The second flight, I sat behind some woman who was coughing the whole time, and I just thought, wow, this this was um, incredibly poor planning, and I'm in denial. So uh, I got to the Guthrie, and we got through about five days of rehearsal on Emma, and then everything started shutting down. We were actually around a table doing table work, and all of our phones started buzzing at once because Broadway was shutting down, and all of our friends at theaters, at countries around the country, uh, theaters around the country were all losing their jobs en masse. Um, the Guthrie at that point closed its other shows, but because this was a pretty small cast and because they didn't know quite where Minnesota was going to go um, because their cases were quite low at that point, uh, <laughs> We kept rehearsing for a couple more days, and we were the a group of 12 people in that huge Guthrie building, which is like, I mean, the Guthrie, that building is like an ocean liner, so we were like these tiny peas rattling around in there. And in the meantime, um, my husband, Jason O'Connell, had been in um, what we're calling a clopening of Amadeus at Syracuse stage. Uh, he had had his opening night and they taped it and then it instantly, everything shut down. So he, rather than fly back to New York, because New York was getting pretty bad, he flew out to Minneapolis. The, the instant basically his flight landed, um, the Guthrie postponed Emma and very graciously allowed us to stay in housing. So we actually were in Minneapolis for two months in the Guthrie's housing, um, just sort of waiting it out. Yeah, we we had originally planned to go on honeymoon in Italy in May and um, or in June. And we took that money instead and we bought ourselves a car and we drove back to New York and that... Um, so and wow, yeah, in cast housing. Exactly, it was a honeymoon in Minneapolis in March. It snowed a lot um, in quarantine. 
so, uh, and since then, you know, it's been uh, everything sort of on pause as it is for everyone. Um, I've done some development work because I was supposed to have five new plays come out in 2020. It was going to be a busy year. And yeah, and all those are postponed. <laughs> so I've had some development of new plays on Zoom, and it turns out that format is actually not bad for it. Um, I wrote a play for Zoom for primary stages, and I'm working on some screenplays, and that's been you know, we got a dog, we redid our apartment. That's been sort of our, or at least organized our apartment. And we got time together, which it, it is slightly unusual for us because we, well, we work so much. Kate, was there income? I mean, fortunately, because I write, um, we're okay. I can still do work and there have been some commissions and, um, I, I have a screenplay in development, so that's been okay. And yeah, that's that's basically been our income. Um, and and you did Tally's Folly. Yes, and we did Tally's Folly. What were the mechanics of doing that show? <laughs> well, it was um, we both worked at Syracuse Stage before, and with the director Bob Hupp, who's really lovely, and they obviously had to change all of their plans, um, as has everyone in every theater in the country and they had been sort of looking to work with us on something anyhow and then they introduced the idea to us because as a couple you're automatically in a pod you don't have to wear masks um they introduced the idea of doing tally's folly and i confess i had never read it um uh but Bob uh, pitched it to us, and it was lovely, and we thought it would fit us well. So we went to Syracuse, and we the first week of rehearsal was all on Zoom. Um, we and then for when was that? That was October. Was the first week, and then we had two and a half weeks of rehearsal, and then we taped it on what would have been opening night, and it was very surreal. Um, because it, it was very sort of anticlimactic. It was lovely, but they had um, this wonderful uh, uh, three-camera crew. We did it twice in one day, and then all of a sudden, all the sort of trappings of theater that I kind of think don't matter that much to me, like opening night parties or the sort of... I don't know, the cheese tray that's set out for the cast after all of a sudden to have none of that and to have no audience was really surreal. We kind of felt like we were um, in in final dress the whole time. It, and it was lovely and really moving to be back. I mean, the first time we had our first rehearsal, we switched off the Zoom camera and we both burst into tears because we... You know, work isn't everything, but it is so much part of our lives, and we've just been separated from that part of ourselves. I, I really was, it's quite an elaborate set. You know, I saw the show, and, yeah. and I, this was probably the first really elaborate show I'd seen through streaming after people ran out their archival videos and in dress rehearsals. Uh, and I was just amazed at, at what a, a, a big production it was comparatively speaking how was that managed 
I mean, that's credit to Bob Hupp at Syracuse Stage, who's been really a pretty exemplary example of some leadership during this time. He's been really good at being very clear, very honest about what's happening and also um, planning. So because my understanding is because Syracuse Stage is affiliated with the university, they have an in-house shop and they had constructed, so they construct the sets way ahead of time. And we were actually never in a rehearsal room. We went straight from Zoom to the theater, which, you know, we were always, we were tested twice a week and we were always masked around anyone that wasn't Jason or myself. Um, uh, but it also is a big, huge space there. I think it's like 500 seats or something. So people could be in the rehearsal, in the space, and we could all be very far from each other. Um, so they constructed it all ahead of time. But what I thought was really fascinating about it was we weren't given the official okay by equity because equity rightfully is having is being very strict on safety standards we weren't given the official okay by equity that we were definitely going to go do this till about a week and a half beforehand so they constructed the entire set and outlaid you know the entire budget on sort of a leap of faith that the numbers were going to be in a place where we would be allowed to do it and yeah it was um yeah, I found it very helpful. I, I, I'm someone who really hates um, in a rehearsal room where you have sort of knock together props and you have to pretend it's whatever, a, a gun or a, I don't know, a lantern. I'm bad at that. So for me to have the actual objects in the actual spaces was helpful, but it was um, quite a shock to the system to go from rehearsing in our housing on the couch together on Zoom, straight to the stage. Did, um, did you did you shoot it straight through, Kate, um, or did you stop like in a film? We we did shoot it straight through, and in fact, um, it was interesting because, of course, you have to be much more precise on blocking um, in order for them to have some continuity. And uh, you know, but we weren't uh, stopping and starting; we were going straight through. And, uh, yeah, I think both Jason and I thought a lot about, and I don't know that we ever came to the right conclusion on this, but Bob was very clear, okay, we are doing this as a stage show that is getting recorded. This is not a film. Um, so Jason and I were calibrating a lot, you know, the difference between stage acting and screen acting, which is, and we're both by trade, primarily stage actors so our instinct is just to push everything to the walls and go big all the time and we did think about okay the camera is going to be more in our face but um yeah it was very much like doing a play it, that's what was interesting was how familiar and non-dystopian it was um it 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 is a comedy so and no one was in the room so we kept on thinking I mean, a romantic comedy, but a comedy. So we kept on thinking, well, I, I hope this is funny. You know, we're both, we both really feed off that. <laughs> I'm, I'm really curious about the logistics of rehearsing on Zoom because I've been really interested in the mechanics of how actors work on Zoom. Um, mm -hmm. Like, for instance, like even little, because there's, okay, there's character work, but there's also 
another layer, which is the technical work. Like I, like I never know where to look, for instance. Like, yeah. did you have directions on where, I mean, cause I mean, I guess you were together when you were working, right? You were in the same room. So it was a little different from working with someone on Zoom, like another actor, like a scene partner would be in another window. So at least you had that, but have you had the experience of working, of doing Zoom work where you were completely different and you had to take that into account? Yeah, I mean, I've. it's interesting because being within the Zoom process as, a, as an actor is so different from watching it. I mean, I've watched my own work over Zoom and it's, um, as a playwright, I've watched it and, and And that's much more discombobulating because you're sort of like, oh, that eye line doesn't match that eye line, you know, like, and of course, overlapping dialogue doesn't work. But as an actor, it's, um, it's shockingly sort of familiar because Jason and I were in the same room. It was interesting, but actually it, it kind of took me back to being in school where you're never in a real rehearsal space. You're sort of just finding whatever rehearsal space is free. So in this case, we were in our housing and there was a real sense of, um, you know, it, sometimes it was hard to think, okay, we're going to have our coffee and make breakfast and then rehearse in the same room where we can still smell our bacon and our eggs and everything and then turn off the camera And also, Jason and I have worked together um, many times before in many different incarnations, but we've actually never been in a two-hander before. And it was, thank God. I was God going we, to ask you that. <laughs> thank, thank God we got along and everything was great. <laughs> we had a moment of, well, if we're driving each other crazy, there's no one else to complain to. Why? <laughs> 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 Um, but fortunately, we got along well. <laughs> is you it something you'd you... like to do more of as a couple? Sure. I mean, it's lovely. I think Jason is one of the most talented actors in the world, to be honest. And I know I always actually I actually met him as an actor before he was my husband. So I always say I really married him for his talent. <laughs> Um, but I, you know, so it's delightful to work with him. Um, and it's fun. I mean, I, I really enjoy having a cast around us. And I think in the same way we, we kept on expecting an audience to walk in, we kept on expecting the rest of the cast to walk in, but yeah, we love it. It's great. And he's lovely, just as lovely as he is on stage. I must say he is as lovely in rehearsal and in process. So You, you yeah. mentioned earlier you had written a play for, for Zoom. Can you, tell me, uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that's another one where I'm very curious as to what kind of constrictions that you, ha you have to maneuver your way around. Well, we haven't started to rehearse it yet. Um, it's for primary stages. And it's a um, the only way that I could personally get my head into it was to... It, it's a farce, basically, and it's it's a Zoom meeting um, in in real time. So it's whatever it is, probably 45 minutes to an hour, a Zoom meeting of um, a bunch of women in a multi-level marketing scheme, essentially, because I find that world very, very interesting. Um, but yeah, that was the only way I could 
it's interesting because I've the, the other stuff I've had developed over Zoom is just workshopping for what will eventually be a play. So so the sort of frustrations of Zoom just feel temporary, but I think I think it would be hard to for me I just couldn't get around just thinking, okay, if I'm writing for this medium, I have to write just for this medium. I can't sort of wishfully create something that's not on Zoom, but that that's just where I was. But we haven't started to rehearse it yet. So it, who knows? It might be a big disaster. What, what, when is that going to be? Is that going to be done at some point? Or is, I mean, when's the, the schedule for that? Uh, we'll rehearse it in February and then it's going to come out in March. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, Kate, we have to um, wrap up uh, fairly soon, uh, but I just had a question. Are you so at this point we're in, you know, we're in the ninth month of this uh, this pandemic. Are you what's your what's your um, frame of mind? You sound, you know, well adjusted for someone who's <laughs> had to fight through this awful period. And I would say remarkably when, chipper. Uh, yeah. Through this time when you don't know when all these plays that you had lined up to uh to start and you had to sh you know scramble and and get work i mean what what does the next 6 months look like for you in terms of just your attitude about the business is it something you want you're going to stick with i mean is there a is there a bailout plan uh to, to have <laughs> another life well well fortunately peter i have no other skills so <laughs> um no i um <laughs> um no, I'm actually feeling very, these days, I'm feeling pretty optimistic, um, not to um, be Pollyanna-ish about it, but uh, because I do think things have been very challenging and will be very challenging, and I'm especially worried about um, what's going to happen to a lot of people when unemployment runs out and when health insurance is no longer available, um, which I think is on the horizon. Um, uh, that being said, I feel, you know, the vaccine's coming out. Um, and I think the fact that uh, Dr. Fauci just said, you know, March, April, the average American pro can probably get vaccinated. That's given theaters a lifeline. I think if we were not looking at that, I would be feeling much um, grimmer. Uh, but, you know, I, I actually feel like this extremely unwelcome pause has been a, a good time to reevaluate the the healthiness of the process of what we do because there have been a lot of accepted practices in theater that have not been for for an industry that and I love this business and I've dedicated a lot of my life to it but um, for an industry that prides itself on sort of shining the light forward in the darkness. We have a lot of hypocrisies and a lot of harmful practices. So I'm really, I actually feel pretty grateful that we're re-examining those. And I'm feeling like, you know, it, it certainly taught us that we can absorb a lot more change than we thought we could. And, and, and I'm feeling like, you know, what, I'm feeling pretty optimistic about the future and, and about um, the kind of work that might be possible. I think the the thing I fear is that in in an attempt to sort of um, get butts in seats, which I certainly understand the reality of, you know, 
what theater is going through financially, that they'll go to very safe places. But I actually feel like, you know, the whole reason why this art form was created was to give catharsis to communities. And we've never been, people will never be more excited to go to a live event with other people. So we actually have incredible opportunity if we actually go for it. So I'm feeling more fired up. Um, there were a couple of months when I just, you know, was depressed and cooked a lot and laced around, but I'm feeling more energized now than I was because there's a world in which we'll be coming into like a real renaissance. Oh, that's great. That's great. That's, that's and lovely. Inspiring to hear, too. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is a lovely uh, uh, way to, uh, to wrap up with you, Kate. Thank you. We wish you the best with uh, all your projects. Is um, is Tally's Folly still available or no? It is not still available. It was a limited run. All right. Well, yeah, we'll wait, we'll wait for the next Jason O'Connell, Kate <laughs> Hamill uh, collaboration. <laughs> well, I, well, we'll see what it is. We don't know. <laughs> yeah, you never know. Well, thank Separately you. <laughs> and or apart. Well, thank you for joining us today. Yes. Thank it you. was great having you on, Kate. Thanks so much. It's a joy. Well, that's it for this edition. I'm Peter Marks, and you've been listening to Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine. I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. Our producer is the ever-patient, oh my God, oh yes, it cannot be said enough. Please, uh, as you can tell from our Erica talks Wong. with Kate you and Samira, on Twitter at we're Three on really the interested in, and in exploring uh, your ideas for whom we could uh, feature on this show. So please let us know what other uh, uh, personalities or topics you'd like us to discuss and interview on future episodes. And please don't forget to give us a, a, a top review or rating on iTunes or, and Google Play. We have okay. a filter. We have a filter. We have a filter. That... Right. Thanks for yeah, listening. Yeah, only good reviews are accepted. We have a, some kind of uh, software that... Eye. We have a filter that uh, prevents uh, any posts under four stars. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>